This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So I got two sons, Ethan and Sean. They're 10 now, uh, finishing up fourth grade, and they're, they're getting more and more into baseball. And uh, this is their second year actually playing baseball. And the other day, we sat down and we watched the movie 42. And the movie 42, it tells the story of Jackie Robinson, who became the first uh, black player to play in Major League Baseball back in 1947. And Branch Rickey, which, like, can we just agree that's an awesome name? Branch Rickey, he was the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he set out to intentionally go and break baseball's unwritten color barrier. Baseball is full of unwritten rules, and one of them was this. And so he offered Jackie a contract to play for the Dodgers. And he offered him this contract knowing full well the hatred, the racism, the violence, the vulgarity that would be inflicted, not just on him, but on his family if he signed. And so before he did, Branch, he looked at Ricky and he said, are, are you going to be able to turn the other cheek when you need to? Branch was a Christian. He understood the words of Jesus, and so was Jackie. But Jackie, he, he looked at Branch and he says, you want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back, don't you? And Branch said to him, no. I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. I want a player who, who's not going to try and get even every time they throw a racial slur at you, every time they threaten you. A, a player who's not going to retaliate and seek revenge every time they're wronged. And can we be honest, that kind of feels like an unfair request to make, doesn't it? To turn the other cheek, to just let it happen and not stand up for yourself. I mean, he, he was asking him to willingly accept the injustice that was inflicted on him rather than ensuring that justice was served. I'm sure all of us here this morning, we felt wronged at some point in our lives. Someone has accused you of doing something you didn't do. Someone has done something to you you felt you didn't deserve. At a minimum, I'm sure half of us felt that way on the drive-in when somebody cut us off feels unfair, doesn't it? It feels unjust, and you feel that rage beginning to burn inside of you, that desire to, to fight back, to get even, to, to teach them a lesson, to uh, avenge what was done so that they feel what you felt. Thing is, though, what we're after, it's not justice, it's vengeance. We're not seeking reparations, we're not seeking to repair what has been broken, no, we're seeking revenge we are seeking to retaliate i think that emotion that we feel when we're wronged i think that accurately captures the misunderstanding that jesus is going to be confronting this morning as we continue listening to the words of jesus and learn to live out the way of jesus here in the sermon on the mount and in this section remember jesus he's confronting and correcting six common misunderstandings about what god has said how we have taken what god has said and twisted what God has said. And this morning, we're going to hear Jesus correcting our misunderstanding of retaliation. And that's our sermon title this morning, Correcting Our Misunderstanding of Retaliation. And the words of Jesus, they speak not just to our actions and how we respond, they speak to our heart and the motive behind our response, don't they? And the way of Jesus, it shows how we, as followers of Christ, how we are to respond when we are wronged, a way that we are going to see 
is entirely counter to our Western culture, a way that is radical in its generosity, a way that puts others ahead of ourselves. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to grab your pen and paper and write this down. Here's our big idea this morning. It's that the way of Jesus is a way of radical generosity that seeks the good of others. The way of Jesus is a way of radical generosity that seeks the good of others. And like we've seen these last few passages in this section, we're going to see Jesus first confront the misunderstanding that we have of retaliation, and then he's going to set out to correct that misunderstanding. And so first, Jesus, he confronts our misunderstanding of retaliation. And and he's confronting uh, a misunderstanding that, that the people this time had about what God had said in the Mosaic Law. And he quotes a very familiar line, one that many have heard. He says in verse 38, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, rather than just paraphrasing, he's quoting an actual uh, passage that we see show up three times in the Mosaic Law. And remember, the Mosaic Law was what God had handed down to Moses atop of Mount Sinai. It's found in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How many of you started singing the song in your head as I read through that list? I did. I sang for you last week. I can't sing two weeks in a row, so that's kind of an unwritten rule like baseball. But now the Mosaic Law, it detailed how God expected His people to live, how the the Jewish people were to live, a way that was holy and set apart from the rest of the world, a way that was pleasing to God. Mosaic Law, it included ceremonial aspects, the feasts, the festivals, the sacrifices, it included moral aspects of how we are to live, how we, how we relate to God, and how we relate to each other. And it also included uh, civil aspects, right? How Israel uh, was to function as a nation, including punishments for various crimes and sins. And this civil aspect was to be overseen by uh, people known as judges who were appointed by God to hear the cases as they came to them, to cast down their judgment and to hand out the punishment as God had specified in the Mosaic Law. And we see this phrase that Jesus cites, we see it first in in Exodus 21, verse 24. And we see it again in in Leviticus chapter 24, where it says, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. While it may seem almost a bit archaic and uncivilized at first, there was a purpose to what God handed down in the law. And there's really two two key buckets of reasons here, two purposes. And the first is that the law promoted justice, right? It promoted justice. And the idea here was that the punishment should fit the crime. That whatever you inflicted on someone else should then be inflicted on you. It's what we know as the law of retribution, the lex talonius in, in Latin. And we see it today in, in the sports world a lot, don't we? Um, I remember not too long ago, there was a hockey player in the NHL who was rather severely injured by, uh, let's be honest, a cheap shot from somebody on the other team. It was not an injury that needed to happen. And he was going to be out for quite a few months because of this injury. And I remember one of the proposals that was brought up was that the, the length of the suspension for the cheap shot player should match the length of the injury for the injured player, like for like. It made sense. 
And then we see something like this in baseball, where if you break one of the 8,000 ridiculous unwritten rules that baseball has, all of them, I think, have a single purpose, which is to eliminate fun from the game. Uh, like, for example, Tim Anderson does a bat flip, right? He's a bat flipper. He plays for the White Sox, for those of you who don't know, because we're Cubs fans here, most of us. Uh, when Tim Anderson does the bat flip, like, that's an unwritten rule. That's a no-no. You don't do that in baseball. Why? Because that's fun, and we don't have fun. But here's the thing. After you do a bat flip, after you crush your home run, you know what you need to expect the next time you go up to bat? You can expect the heat coming high and inside, and you better duck. But these two examples, as, even though they may appear similar, they're very different, aren't they? See, one is about retribution. One is about a like punishment for the like crime. The other is retaliation, isn't it? It's about getting back. It's about getting even. God's law of retribution, it was not revenge. It was not vengeance. It instead promoted justice. It promoted justice within the nation of Israel, and it was equally applied. It was egalitarian in that sense. It was fair to all because the punishment fit the crime. Right? Think of it, if we were down at Redemption Kids, I'd probably call it the Goldilocks principle of justice. Right? Think of it. The, the, the punishment, not too big, not too hard, not too harsh, but the punishment, not too small, not too soft, not too light, is just right. It's a mama bear punishment, right down the middle. In the Mosaic Law, it provided consistent punishment, but it also limited excess punishment. While God promoted justice, he promoted retribution. What we also see in the law, the second thing here is that he prohibited vengeance. Right? He prohibited vengeance. He prohibited retaliation. And God's kind of saying here, he's like, we can't have people out running around like bats in the middle of the night, can we? We're not all donning black capes and cows and running around saying, I am vengeance. God's not calling for some Batman vigilante justice here. He's not allowing us to carry out some Godfather-like vendetta, right? You know how that works. You, you insulted my sister, and so I kill you. But then you kill me and my sister, but then my guys go and kill all of your guys, and it continues to spiral from there. See, when we take the law into our own hands, the violence always escalates, doesn't it? It is a spiral. And it's because what we seek is not justice, it is vengeance. We seek to inflict more pain than we have received. But I think it's important to see in the Old Testament law, God did not grant each and every individual the title of judge, jury, and executioner with the permission to poke out an eye and yank out a tooth. No, he appointed judges. He appointed the state to carry out those punishments. But not only did God prohibit vengeance and retaliation with our hands, he prohibited it with our words as well. We see this in Deuteronomy 19, where uh, we see if someone accuses another individual of, of doing something, and we find out later that uh, their accusation was wrong, that they were lying, that it was a false accusation. Then what he says here in, uh, in Leviticus, sorry, Deuteronomy 19. Guys, remember last week when I couldn't find my place in my Bible? You would think I would remember to bring my reading glasses up. He says, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear in fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall, not be, or it shall be life for life, 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. Whatever you falsely accuse the person of would be done back to you. And so God gave the Israel the law to promote justice, to promote retribution within the nation, but not to promote vengeance and retaliation by individuals. He, he gave it to protect them, to protect the victims of violence and the most vulnerable in the society. And yet, like Israel, we often only hear what we want to hear when God speaks, don't we? Rather than hearing God's heart for promoting justice, I think what we hear is a permission to retaliate, right? We read eye for eye and tooth for tooth, and we view that as, a, as an invitation, so to speak, to be the right hand of God and administer His justice, that we are judge, jury, and executioner in our own lives. And when we do that, when we retaliate, when we seek a vengeance, it always escalates, right? You hit me on the playground, I hit you back harder. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back harder. You say something bad about me, I'll say something worse about you. You leave a pile of dog poo in my front yard, I'm going to leave a bigger pile of dog poo in your front yard. We keep score, don't we? We keep score of every wrong ever done to us. We say that we have a hard time memorizing Scripture, but man, do we have the brain power to store the wrongs that have been committed against us. And it's not enough to get back, is it? It's not enough to just get even. We want more. We want to even the score, and we want them to feel what we felt. And so Jesus confronts our misunderstanding, and then he goes on, as he's done in these last few passages, to correct our misunderstanding of retaliation. He's like, that is not what God meant. God didn't mean that we're all demented dentists and ophthalmologists that are going around poking out eyeballs. Let's read this section. He says in verse 39, he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Each week of this section, it, we read the passage and the words of Jesus don't sit right at first, do they? This one sure didn't for me. It, it sounds like rather than coming to fulfill the law, that he came to cancel the law. That rather than ensuring justice to serve, he's asking us to uh, just incur more and more injustice. Rather than protecting the vulnerable, it sounds like he's exposing them. Then he's taking this idea of pacifism to this extreme and, and calling us to basically just stand there like a doormat. It sounds like he's saying if an abusive husband beats his wife and he gives her a black eye and the right eye, that she's just supposed to stand there and take it and turn to him her left eye and take another black eye, doesn't it? It, it sounds like what he's saying is that if you're sued for something you didn't do, that rather than lawyer up, you're supposed to pay up, even if it means filing for bankruptcy. It sounds like what he's saying, that if, if you get kidnapped and thrown into the trunk of a car, you're just supposed to go willingly. It sounds like what he's saying is that if your brother's coming to you yet again asking for more money that you know he's going to use to buy more drugs, that you're supposed to just give it to him, that you're not supposed to refuse him. Jesus said it. And like, that doesn't sound like the way of Jesus. And if that's the way of Jesus, I think I want to go another way. 
I'd venture to guess I'm not the only one thinking that as we read this passage the first time through. See, some legs in our journey of following Jesus, they're more difficult and less clear and less certain than others, aren't they? Sometimes as you're following a trail, there are some sections that are more difficult, aren't they? They're steeper, they're rockier. But then other sections are easier. Some are more difficult, some are less clear. Basically, we we start out on the trail, it it feels like we we started on a sidewalk in, in the woods as we left the parking lot. This is great, this is easy, nice and flat. After a while, it becomes a a well-marked dirt path. And the further we go, sometimes it seems to narrow. And after a while, you're not even sure if you're on the right path anymore. And that's how some passages like this one feel at times. And why it's even more important that we look for those sure and certain markers along the way that help make the way forward more clear. But that requires humility, doesn't it? It requires humility because it, it means acknowledging that we might be off path, that we might have misunderstood. But that's what pride does, right? Pride prevents course corrections, doesn't it? Arrogance keeps you on a path that leads you further and further away from God rather than toward Him. I told you on the outset of this Sermon on the Mount that the way of Jesus might not look like the way you've been taught. And that the words of Jesus might not sound like what you had thought. But allowing a course correction along the way, it is humbling. I found with me and my journey that the longer I follow Jesus, the more certain I become about certain things and the less certain I become about other things. And that what I'm seeking is to allow what God actually said to correct what I thought he said, what I hoped he said, what I assumed he said. Because my desire, my desire is not to be proven right when I come to Scripture. My desire is faithfulness. To befriend faithfulness, as we read in Psalm 37. To allow the words of Jesus to lead us in the way of Jesus. Even when his way is not the way that I want it to go. And so as the path becomes less clear, as the path becomes less certain, we need to be sure of two things. We need to be sure that we don't mark a boundary that God did not define, which we are really good at doing, aren't we? And we need to be sure that we don't overlook a boundary that He did define just because we don't like it, just because we disagree with it. And so as we've done these last couple of weeks, I want us to look at what we know to be clear and certain about retaliation from the entirety of Scripture. And then we're going to come back and hear Jesus' words one more time. And the first thing that I think we can agree that is clear and certain in Scripture, even in this passage, is this. is that Jesus is not denying the reality and the presence of evil, is He? He's not denying the reality of evil. In chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, we saw Jesus tempted by Satan in the wilderness. We saw him go on to heal those that were oppressed by demons. Jesus, he is intimately familiar with evil that exists in our broken and fallen world. And he acknowledges it here in verse 39, doesn't he? That sinful people do evil things to each other. We know that to be true. Those things have been done to us and we have inflicted them on others. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all done evil things. 
He's not denying the reality and presence of evil. And the second thing is that uh, Jesus is not condoning evil. Right? He's not condoning evil. He's not turning a blind eye to it. He's not an ostrich with his head buried in the sand. And he's not calling us to be that either. He, he's not compromising anything. In fact, he's confronting evil. He's, he's calling it out. And that's because the third thing we know to be clear and certain is that Jesus desires justice. Amen? Jesus desires justice. We see God's desire for justice permeate the entire Mosaic law. We know Jesus, he said himself, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't come to cancel the law, but he did come to correct our misunderstandings about it. But not only do we see God's desire for justice in the law, we see it, we see it in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 33.5, it says God loves righteousness and justice. He, he loves justice because he is just. We see it in the Psalms, we see it in the prophets. Isaiah 1, verse 17, one of my favorite passages where he says, cease to do evil and learn to do good. Seek justice and correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless orphans and plead the widow's cause, right? Jesus desires justice. And that leads us to our fourth thing that's clear and certain, and that is that Jesus is not preventing us from responding to evil. I need us to see that here. Jesus is not preventing us from responding to evil. I think we misunderstand what Jesus is saying when he says, do not resist the one who is evil, if he, we think that he's calling us to some sort of extreme pacifism that prevents pursuing justice, uh, responding to injustice, defending ourselves, or protecting the vulnerable. That contradicts the very idea of peace and justice that we have been called to pursue. And so one of the questions that I think comes with this passage, remember how last week we jumped to the extreme of, well, what if I get called to testify before Congress? And we answered the question just in case that ever happens. Uh, but I think we come to a passage like this, and we're like, but what if I see someone getting attacked in the alley? What if someone breaks into my house and starts uh, beating up my children? Is Jesus saying that I'm supposed to just sit there and take it? I I don't think that's what he's talking about here. You're talking about an in-the-moment response where injustice is being inflicted. What Jesus is talking about is a calculated revenge plot. Do you see how those are different? He's not talking about this thing. He's talking about this thing. He's talking about what's in our heart. He's talking about getting even. And so I need us to see Jesus is not preventing us from responding to evil. Another one, though, that is so, so important to see here, number five, is this. Jesus is not speaking to others. He's speaking to us. Right? Jesus isn't speaking to others. He's speaking to us. He's speaking in this Sermon on the Mount to his followers that have come up onto the mountain with him. And so what that means here is in this passage, in this entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't speaking to those who have inflicted evil on us. He's speaking to the evil that exists in our heart when injustice is inflicted on us. You see the difference there? He's not speaking to them. He's speaking to us. He's speaking to our sinful response to sin. And that leads us to number six here, and that is that Jesus is condemning violent, vengeful retaliation. Let's also not miss that. Jesus is condemning violent, vengeful retaliation. He's speaking to our heart. He's speaking to the motives behind our action, both what it is that we are plotting and pursuing and how it is we go about plotting and pursuing it. And I think, 
I think it's important for us to see nowhere in Scripture that I have found does Jesus call us to arms, does he? Nowhere does Jesus say, go get your weapons and let's go to war. Not that kind of war. Nowhere does he call us to arms to defend him or to defend his bride, to defend the church. In fact, what we do see in Scripture is the exact opposite, don't we? On the night before Jesus was crucified, the night that he was arrested as he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, what we see is Peter, he, he pulls out his sword, he attacks a shoulder, and he hacks off his ear. And Jesus didn't high-five him, did he? Jesus didn't say, thank you, you saved me. No, Jesus rebuked Peter. He rebuked Peter and he told him to put, put away the sword. Martin Luther King Jr., who he said in a sermon on Matthew 5, he says, hate multiplies hate. It spirals, it escalates. Hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence. And so I don't want us to miss here, Jesus is condemning a violent, vengeful retaliation both violent with our hands and violent with our words. And that leads us to the seventh thing that I want to see here that I think is clear and certain about this, and that is that Jesus is calling us to a posture of nonviolence that pursues peace. Jesus is calling us to a posture of nonviolence that pursues peace. He said in the Beatitudes that we read just a few weeks ago, blessed are the peacemakers. Not the war makers, but the peacemakers. And we talked about in that sermon in, in Matthew 5, verse 9, that where the, whereas the world pursues peace by, by uh, avoiding conflict, right? By pretending it doesn't exist and by preventing it from occurring, even by threatening more violence and more conflict to prevent it from occurring. The way of Jesus goes a very different way and it actively pursues the presence of something. It pursues the presence of peace. It's seeking shalom. So we need to see here, Jesus is not calling us to respond to evil with evil. He is not calling us to respond to violence with violence or to sin with sin. Do you know what he's calling us to respond with? Love. He's calling us to respond with love. He's calling us to something that is radical. Something that if we're honest, we're not all that excited about all the time. Something that is radically generous and seeks the good of others ahead of ourselves. And so with that in mind, I want to reread the words of Jesus to you. I want you to keep what we just saw that was clear and certain in mind as I read them. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Right, the way of Jesus is a way of radical generosity that seeks the good of others. And there's four illustrations that he gives here, and I want to run through these real quick to give you four ways in which we go about pursuing this. And number one is this. It's that the way of Jesus sacrifices our honor for the good of others. Right? The way of Jesus sacrifices honor. That's what we see here in verse 39. He says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And when Jesus, when he refers to the slapping of a cheek here, especially the, the right cheek, which would have been done with the back of, of the left hand, he's not talking about inflicting violence. No, he's talking about insulting someone's honor, about insulting their dignity, an act that was considered degrading and humiliating in the first century. 
And I'd venture to guess we've all been degraded. We've all felt that sense of humiliation, haven't we? I mean, I, I don't know, at least for me, it felt like a daily occurrence growing up as a kid in elementary school. You were either the one receiving it or you were the one giving it, probably. We were mocked, you're made fun of, you're belittled, you're called names. And it doesn't stop when you graduate, does it? No, it continues on as adults. And we see it today. We, we see it all over social media. We see it especially when we disagree with one another, don't we? Somewhere along the way, we move from discussing our differences and debating our disagreements to shaming each other, to attacking each other's dignity and humanity when we disagree with one another. And this last year has given us no shortage of things to disagree on, amen? Every week, there's a new thing added to the list that, oh, okay, I guess I know what we're fighting about this week. Assumptions are made about each other. Accusations are hurled toward each other, and they hurt, don't they? They hurt, they leave scars, and they fuel that rage that's burning inside of you. And when things are said to you, or worse, when things are said about you, typically behind your back, you want to fight back and you want to prove them wrong, don't you? You want to defend your name, you want to defend your honor. The problem is we typically defend our honor by destroying theirs, don't we? We defend our honor by tearing them down. We seek to defend our good name by ruining theirs. Man, that's nothing more than verbal violence. Verbal vengeance, retaliating with our words. And what Jesus is calling here in verse 39 is to sacrifice our honor. To receive that verbal insult rather than retaliate because our identity, it's not found in what others say about us. It's not found in what others do to us. It's found in our loving Heavenly Father who has adopted us, who has chosen us as His sons and His daughters. And so, man, let's discuss our differences. Let's do. Let's discuss our differences. Let's disagree with each other. But let's do so with dignity. Let's sacrifice our honor when we are insulted, yet still treating those who degrade us with the honor that they have not shown us. Amen? Real easy to do, isn't it? Told you this was radical, and this is generous. Here's the second thing. The way of Jesus, it lays down our rights for the good of others. There's an, I got a lot of fun words today. We got pacifism, we've got violence, and we've got rights. But the way of Jesus lays down our rights for the good of others. He says in verse 40, he says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now in the first century, men typically wore two layers of clothing. They wore a tunic, think of it like the t-shirt, your undershirt, and then they wore a cloak or a jacket, a robe over the top. And that cloak, it would double as a blanket at night. And typically, like, first century Jewish men, they didn't have, like, a closet full of cloaks. No, they had, like, one. And the kicker is, is if you lost it, if someone took it from you, like, it's going to be a long, cold night. Like, when you go camping and you think, oh, it's going to be nice all day, and then it's, like, minus 22 at night, and you brought, like, a blanket, it's cold, isn't it? That cloak, it was considered so necessary if not essential for survival, that it says in Exodus 22 that if you ever take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, like he gives it to you as collateral basically, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down because it's about to get cold. 
For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep if you've not given him his cloak back? Give the guy back his cloak. And so here's Jesus saying that if someone comes after you to, to get you, they, they sue you for something small that seems insignificant, don't fight back. And not only that, not only do you give them that thing of little importance, you give them something else of greater importance, of greater significance. And then Paul says something similar regarding lawsuits between Christians in 1 Corinthians 6. He says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It's a defeat for the church. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And did you notice what neither Jesus or Paul gave us in those two passages? Neither one gave us a reason, did they? It's frustrating, isn't it? They didn't give us a reason. They didn't give us an explanation why. They're simply calling us to lay down our rights and even be willingly deprived of what is rightfully yours. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Discipleship, says in this passage, he says, when a Christian meets with injustice, not if, but when, he no longer clings to his rights and defends them at all costs. That is the American way, though, isn't it? We will defend them at all costs. Now he says he is absolutely free from possessions and bound to Christ alone. That is our identity. He's calling us to put the good of others ahead of our own comfort, ahead of our own rights. Man, God has given us this incredible opportunity over this last year in the pandemic to show our concern for the health and well-being of others. This incredible opportunity for Christians to lead the way in this, in willingly setting aside our comfort and temporarily setting aside our rights for the well-being of others, to truly and actively love our neighbor as ourself as Christ has called us, can do, called us to do, treating each other with dignity, treating each other with dignity when they make decisions and they make choices that might differ from us as well. Because the way of Jesus is a way of radical generosity that lays down our rights for the good of others. In the third illustration here, what we see is that the way of Jesus endures persecution and it endures it for the good of others. It says in verse 41, he says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now Jesus is not talking about a track meet where if you get done running four laps, you should run four more laps and run the two mile. Not saying that. Now, what he's saying here is, uh, in, in the first century, Roman soldiers, they were able to legally enlist and, and conscript, conscript someone uh, into service temporarily to carry their equipment up to a certain distance. It, it's kind of like police officers today uh, commandeering your vehicle in a high-speed chase, which I'm still not quite sure if that's legal or not. Um, I don't know. I'm not going to say, but it's like that. But keep in mind, this example that Jesus has here. Jesus, he's not, he, he's not saying that they should uh, do something that God forbids them from doing. God never where, anywhere said, you shall not carry a Roman soldier's equipment. Uh, he's also uh, not saying that you should not do what God has commanded. That we're not breaking any of God's laws in this. Let's keep that in mind. But I think what's also important to see is, is that the Jewish people, they despised the Romans. They hated the Roman government. They were oppressive over them, especially a group that is referred to as the Zealots. They were this violent resistance group. They were consumed by their national identity and national pride. 
And they would never dream of helping the Romans, of the group on the other side of the aisle, if you will, because that was unpatriotic. Fast forward 2,000 years, like if we're honest, like we'll barely help a friend that we love dearly move, will we? Yet alone an enemy. You ever notice when it comes time for you to move, like all of your friends are all of a sudden busy that day. They're free the day before, they're free the day after, but that day, for whatever reason, in that specific three-hour chunk, it's an unmovable object in their calendar. And yet here's Jesus calling us to not just help a friend move out of their apartment. No, He's calling us to help our enemy move into theirs, into their third-story walk-up where it doesn't have an elevator, and they don't just have a couch, they got a sleeper sofa. That's what Jesus is calling us to endure. He's calling us to willingly endure persecution and to voluntarily double what is asked. Why? Why are you doing this, Jesus? Walter Wink, who uh, was a Methodist minister and professor, he wrote extensively on Christian nonviolent resistance. And his response to that question was this. It's that it robs the oppressor of the power to humiliate. Bonhoeffer writes about this as well, that this idea that love disarms. And we might not always see it in the moment. I don't want you to think that if somebody comes up to you in the middle of an alley and puts a gun up to your head and says, give me your wallet, that if he's like, I love you, can I pray for you? He's probably still taking your wallet. But what we start to see, we start to see the heart of Jesus here. Love robs the oppressor of the power to humiliate. I think this is important for us to see because persecution for our faith, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, amen? It will happen. Like the church, if you've studied any amount of church history, you know that the church has suffered persecution from its inception. We get to the book of Acts and we have persecution. There's a guy named Paul. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And what we have experienced is nothing like what the church in other times and in other places has experienced. But I think what we do see here is that our response to persecution, it reveals our priorities, doesn't it? It reveals what we value most. Are we more concerned with our rights or are we more concerned with our righteousness? The last thing that we see here is this. Number four, the way of Jesus is charitable toward the needs of others. The way of Jesus is charitable towards the needs of others. He says in in verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now please keep in mind here, Jesus is not calling us to accommodate every request that is ever made of us and to accommodate them in full. Nor is he speaking exclusively of money. He's not speaking exclusively of finances. There's a, there's a book called When Helping Hurts that I think does a great job in showing from a Christian perspective how simply throwing money at the problem of poverty doesn't always help. In fact, it can even hurt at times. Jesus, make no mistake, Jesus time and time and time again has called us to be generous with our finances. Amen? Let's not make a mistake that he's not saying that. No, he has said that. But not just that. Not just our finances. He's called us to be charitable with whatever we have and with whatever others need. And what I think we find is that oftentimes that costs us more than money, doesn't it? 
Oftentimes what others need most is they need our hands to serve them. They need our ears to listen to them. They need our hearts to love them. They simply need our presence to, to be with them. And that costs us something more valuable than money. That costs us our time and that costs us a portion of ourselves. Little tangent here, like I'm super excited about something and you know that I do a really bad job of keeping secrets, right? When I get excited. The Hands and Feet and team and I, we've been, we've been gathering, we've been talking, and we've been prayerfully considering for us as a church family how we can be more charitable towards the needs of others here in our community. And we've got two really exciting things that we are praying about, and I'm, I'm really doing you a solid here by, letting you, by not telling you what they are just yet, aren't I? I'm just teasing it out. This is the teaser trailer. But what I want to invite you to do is I want you to join us in praying over this last item that we as a church, that we would be more charitable to the needs of others in our community. And these are ways that I think truly promote life, the dignity of life, the sanctity of life, and the dignity of others. And so just make a little note in your, in your notes there. Pray for charity. Pray for the hands and feet team. Will you do that for me? And join us in praying for that. Because the way of Jesus is a way of radical generosity that seeks the good of others, that seeks the good of all others, that loves our neighbor as ourselves. Amen? But the thing about the way of Jesus is that he's not asking anything of us that he's not willing to do himself, is he? He's not asking us to do anything that he's not already done. And what Jesus did for us in seeking our good is the most radically generous thing the world has ever seen. Because, see, the truth is we are the evil ones, aren't we? We have committed wrongs, and the just penalty for our sin is our death. And yet Jesus sacrificed his honor for our good, didn't he? He was spit on that Friday morning. He was blindfolded and whipped and crowned with thorns and robed in a purple cloak and mocked as the soldiers decreed, Hail, King of the Jews! Jesus, he laid down his rights, not fighting the charges of treason that were brought against him. Jesus, he willingly endured persecution as he was nailed to the cross and he shed his blood for our good. And Jesus was charitable with his entire being, giving his life, dying our death, and dying it in our place on the cross. And what Christ and the cross show us, Bonhoeffer says, is that the cross is the only power in the world which proves that suffering, love, can avenge and vanquish evil. Love robs the oppressor of their power to humiliate. On the cross, God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. And Peter says that he did this, leaving for us an example so that we might follow in his steps. Brothers and sisters, this is the way of Jesus. It is a way of radical generosity that seeks the good of others. It is a way that is often uncomfortable. It is a way that we would not have chosen for ourselves. It is a way of suffering as we pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus and befriend faithfulness. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.